It's no secret that Abram shared a special relationship with God, one that appeared to be more personal than the one between Noah and God, and perhaps even Adam and God. For one, God is more present with Abram than the former two, and as far as the Bible tells us, appears to give Abram more in terms of guidance, wisdom, and even earthly rewards. We see Abram promise the entire land of Canaan, as well as earning many riches in the form of cattle, gold, and even servants. Furthermore, the legacy of Abram is secured by God, for he is promised that he will have many descendants. Unlike the other biblical characters who come before Abram, it cannot be denied that Abram had a far more personal connection with God, and this could be a reflection of why he is so highly regarded. Abram didn't just believe in his God, he had faith in him that he would deliver him. He wasn't afraid to talk to God, and to ask God for his counsel, that which he often received, and it serves to show believers that if they are open and willing to communicate with God, his rewards for you could be endless. Much like Abram, believers who trust in God and who are loyal to him in the same way Abram was, can expect to be blessed. And whilst they might still be tested, they can maintain some resolve in the fact that God will help them through such adversity. We see Abram make a habit of doing this in the Bible, as he not only obeys God without question, thus showing how much he trusts him, but also that God never lies to Abram, nor deserts him. There are two moments in the Bible where we see God essentially mark Abram as his favourite, for he grants him with two great promises. One, that the land belongs to him, and the other, that he will have a son, despite his wife being long past the age of conceiving. The covenant, as the Bible describes it, is not only a sign of how much God values Abram, but also how powerful God is, that he is able to gift land to one individual person, as well as being able to bend the limitations of biology, and allowing for Sarai to conceive and deliver, despite her old age. The covenant serves to show believers that God loves his creations, and that those who serve him loyally, and trust him the way in which Abram did, can be rewarded equivocally. In the covenant, which we first see mentioned in Genesis 15, we see Abram promised both a son and the land in which his descendants would come to occupy. We are told that God appeared to Abram in a vision, and tells him, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Already we learn of God's allegiance to Abram, and that God seeks to protect him, whilst also referring to said protection as a reward, a reward for his loyalty, faith, and goodwill. Abram replies with dismay that he remains childless. He worries that his estate therefore will be inherited by a servant, and that there will be no one of his own blood to carry on his legacy. But God assures Abram that this will not be the case, as there will indeed be a son that is of Abram's own flesh and blood. He tells Abram to look up at the stars, and to try and count them, if he can, for there are many which would also be true of Abram's descendants. Instead of arguing with God, or trying to point out the discrepancies in his prediction, Abram chooses to believe the Lord, and credits his word as the absolute truth. Here we understand another vital point of why God loves Abram as much as he does, because Abram doesn't just believe in God, 
but he puts his faith in him too. Whilst he does doubt God's words initially, God's metaphor that Abram's sons will be as many as the stars puts his mind at ease. Despite how unlikely this sounds considering his age, he does not become defensive or otherwise critical. Abram accepts God's words as facts, and this allows him to rest easy that despite how bleak things looked, God would see to a more favourable eventuality for him. God also makes Abram another promise, as he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. And here we learn of the second point of the covenant, that Abram will become the possessor of the land before him. Yet again, Abram expresses doubt, saying, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? The doubt shown here by Abram is quite surprising, considering that God, despite being recognised as all-powerful by Abram, still appears unconvinced. His question seems to demand proof of God's promise, and it's interesting that despite everything that God had shown him thus far, Abram still has doubt. But this is actually quite typical of the men in Abram's position, that despite witnessing God's power firsthand, they seem to forget about its potency, or at least can't fathom how they could possibly be a part of it. Therefore, they often seem to require some proof, a trait that makes Abram more relatable to the common man. I suppose you can forgive Abram's doubt, considering he had no legal hold over the land in question, nor any form of certification that anyone else would recognise. All he really had was the word of God, and this wasn't something that others would so easily receive. So God decides to placate Abram's doubts, and asks him to make him a sacrifice of a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It's a pretty specific list, but Abram did as was instructed. He cut them in two, and placed each piece opposite the other, having already sacrificed animals in this customary way before. Whilst the Bible does not determine the specifics of why this was done, it is believed that this was a form of contract between Abram and God. The cutting of the animals and the placement of their flesh has been considered to be an agreement made between man and God, and that in this instance, this was an archaic equivalent of Abram and God signing their names on a contractual agreement. The covenant here is so imperative that it is sealed with blood, the blood of the animals who were slain. If the covenant therefore was broken by either party, the blood of these creatures was on the offender's hands. Therefore, when God asked Abram to make these sacrifices, it can be said that he was telling Abram to go and get a pen, and that he would write his name to it immediately. There's also an idea that these rites were done not just between man and God, but between men themselves, and that the two parties would walk through the animal parts as a way of agreeing on a deal. By this, there is an implication that Abram had to wait for God to appear and walk through the animal parts with him, and that in the meantime, he had to fight off the vultures, which came to feed on the carcasses. After the contract was signed, Abram falls asleep and has another vision of God, where God tells him, Know for certain that for 400 years 
your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace, and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Here God tells Abram that he certainly will have descendants, but that for 400 years they will be strangers in their country and treated as slaves. So whilst Abram's desire for offspring does appear to be on the cards, the conditions that these offspring will be born into are likely not what Abram had in mind. Here Abram has to accept the reality that his children will not live as comfortably as he has, and that whilst he is being blessed by God, it is something of a bittersweet blessing. But there is a light in the darkness here, and that's the promise that after four generations, Abram's offspring will recover the land, and will do so with great possessions. So whilst there will be some suffering, eventually, Abram's descendants would indeed one day live freely, and there would be many of them, as God had declared. The Bible then tells us, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kedomonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Here we learn that whilst Abram was sleeping, or perhaps as he was half asleep and groggy, he saw God appear in the form of a blazing torch, and that it passed through the pieces of the animals, thus signifying God's agreement to the covenant, his very signature, if you will. Through this, Abram knew that God would be true to his word, and that everything he had said would come to pass. To make it abundantly clear to Abram that his word was true, God then proceeded to list all of the territories that his descendants would come to inherit, and by this, he shows that this is not some vague, figurative promise, but instead, a very specific set of conditions that would manifest. By Genesis 17, we see the covenant talked about yet again, as God appears to Abram in his even older age of 99 years. It is perhaps Abram's patience that marks him out from those who came before him, and perhaps why God holds him so highly. For despite being made to wait many years since the original covenant, Abram does not lose faith and continues to believe in God's words, even though there is little sign of them coming true. We even see Sarai try to force the covenant to be actualized by involving Hagar and having her conceive a child for Abram instead. But Abram himself is unshakable in his belief, and whilst others prove to be less trusting of God, Abram is not one of them. But by the age of 99, it would be some 13 years since God had spoken to him, where he tells him, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully, and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. 
Here we see God make himself known to Abram once more, and he proceeds to remind him of the covenant, showing that he himself had not forgotten about it, for he was almighty, and his word was the truth. Still, in those 13 years of absence, it is entirely possible that Abram's faith waned, and who could blame him? The Bible does not appear to document any significant moment within those 13 years, so whilst Abram could have succumbed to doubts again, for the most part, it seems as if he remained hopeful. We are then told, Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Here we see God changes Abram's name to the more commonly known Abraham. Why he does this though is not necessarily clear. Some believe that the name change was done to further encourage Abram to keep his faith, and that his many descendants would claim the land which was promised. There's also the idea that the name Abram had the Hebraic meaning of father of many, a clear indicator that he would be the father of many descendants. But with the idea that Abram's descendants would come to claim the land, he required a name to better represent that. And so, Abraham, or in Hebraic, the father of many nations, was deemed better suited by God. It also continued to show Abram that God was taking him and the covenant seriously, for why else would he promote his name? God continued, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. In almost every utterance, God intensifies the promise he has made. What was once just descendants becomes descendants who will become kings, and that there will be nations worth, implying that this is more than just the promised land, but beyond. This would have only likely served to make Abraham more enticed by the word of his God, especially after the 13 year absence. With these new richer specifications, Abraham's faith is reinvigorated, something that might have been particularly difficult for a man of his age. We also learn that the covenant is not just between God and Abraham, but instead an everlasting covenant that spans for as long as Abraham has descendants, and that they too will benefit from. God continues, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Here we learn that God commands Abraham that males over the age of eight days are to have their foreskins removed, and that every male born among Abraham's descendants would need to follow this practice. The reason being that because the covenant had been made with the continuation of Abraham's genealogy in mind, it was considered an appropriate sign to mark the reproductive organ of the body in this manner. 
Essentially, circumcision was a rite which males would undergo in order to claim their place in the covenant. Furthermore, it is one of the only times in regards to the covenant that God gives Abraham something to do, and that this is a practical step for him and his descendants to take in order to show that they have received the covenant too, and thus have faith in God. Circumcision is not just something invented in the Bible, of course. It was a ritual practiced amongst various different people of the time, for various different reasons. One idea was that it was more hygienic, and also contributed to the survivability of the Jewish race. Others suggest that circumcision was brought about to prevent masturbation and to reduce sexual pleasure, thus keeping a man pure. Today, of course, there is much debate as to whether circumcision has any real advantage, as well as whether or not this practice is wholesome at all, given the non-compliance of the baby being circumcised. God continued, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here we get the idea from God that those who are not circumcised have broken the covenant, and that refusal to get circumcised is a rejection of the covenant itself. However, since then, it's understood that circumcision, in this instance of the Old Testament, was a pact between God and Jewish males. Meanwhile, those of the Christian faith, as echoed in the New Testament, do not see circumcision as a requirement, and are instead urged to be circumcised of the heart, by placing their trust in Jesus and his ultimate sacrifice for man's sin. Again, circumcision remains a heated debate, both in terms of religious beliefs between various communities and the actual ethical implications. We then see another name change, but this time it is for Sarai, who becomes Sarah. The Bible tells us, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. It is believed that the reason for this name change comes about because Sarah indicated a higher social status than that of Sarai. Whilst the name change is subtle, it does have the effect, at least in the time period, of making Sarai more prominent. God also continues that he has not forgotten about Abraham's wish for a son by Sarai, and that this will be delivered, despite their advanced age. But Abraham's response to this part of the covenant is one of amusement. He actually falls down and starts laughing at the idea of him and Sarah conceiving, considering the fact that they are both so old. So yet again, Abraham is filled with doubt, to the point that he thinks that the Lord is joking. Another idea here is that Abraham's laughter is not because he is amused, but instead filled with joy, 
because God is the only one who could say such a thing and actually be correct about it. But God makes it clear that Sarah will have his child and that this child should be named Isaac. He also states that the covenant will extend to Isaac and all of Isaac's descendants and that he has been blessed. He also takes this moment to bless the illegitimate Ishmael, saying that he will be fruitful and multiply exceedingly, as well as being made a great nation himself. We then learn that Abraham follows God's instructions and takes Ishmael and all who were born in his house to be circumcised. This included the servants who were born, or those who had found their way into Abraham's estate through whatever means. We also understand that this took place on the very same day that God commanded it, showing that Abraham did not delay the Lord's words and set about making it happen as soon as possible. Such was his dedication. In conclusion, the covenant between Abraham and God can be broken down into three principal points. There is the promised land of Canaan, which would become Israel, that which was the land Abraham and his descendants were fated to inherit. Secondly, there is the promise of descendants, where as we've learned, God tells Abraham he will have many children, some of which will even become kings. Lastly, there is the promise of blessings and redemption, where God promises to bless all of his descendants, at least those who are part of the covenant. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from the covenant is the exemplification of God keeping to his promises. It shows us that despite how far-fetched God's words can be, he always delivers on that which he says. There's also a lesson of patience and trust that can be learned through Abraham, who despite waiting decades, never gives up hope and therefore reaps the benefits when the covenant is actualized. <laughs>